Today we're going to depart from, we're not depart, we're going to not go in, go in the Psalms. I'm going to go back into 2 Kings. Um, it's kind of interesting as we go through this journey, through the Psalms and through the life of David, which was 2 Samuel and now First and 2 Kings, I get into studying on the Psalms. I thought, oh, this is really good. We need to stay here. And then we depart for a week or so, and then we go into Israel and the life of David and Israel after David. And I think, oh, this is really good. We need to stay in here for a while. So we go back and forth. Um, so it's good, I think, it's good for me. Hopefully it's good for you to to see a little bit of the context and what's going on while many of these psalms were being written and some of the things that were going on with Israel. And so today, we've been in the Psalms for a few weeks. Today we're going to be in 2 Kings chapters 8 and the first part of chapter 9. And we are in the life of Elisha. Elijah has departed and Elisha is now the main prophet in Israel. And the first section of First Kings, 2 Kings chapter 8, if I say the wrong Kings, if I say 1 Kings, I don't mean it. Um, but I might. And it's like when I say Elijah instead of Elisha sometimes. I don't mean that either. So it's what I mean, not what I said necessarily. <laughs> but we have in the first six verses the restoration of the land to the Shumanite woman. And we say here in verse 8, he says, or in chapter 8, verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, and this happened earlier, um, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. You know, famines occurred a lot, you know, in that, in that area. But here it says, The Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So she left her land for seven years. Went to the Philistines, then she came back to get her land back. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, which is Elisha, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, O my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Interesting story, you know. <clears throat> and we see in these verses, one thing we see in these verses is Elisha had some clout with the king. After all, he had demonstrated that he, is God, he was God's prophet on multiple occasions. And here the king was well aware that God's spirit was working through Elisha. And we see him coming, uh, and, and we will see coming up in chapter 9, 
that it is Elisha who will send a messenger to anoint Jehu to become Israel's king. But I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. What we are seeing in this and the following sections is that God is controlling all of the events of Israel and Judah as well. And he is showing his sovereignty and his power to accomplish his purposes. And Elisha is his servant. And he is using Elisha to accomplish some of his plan. Specifically, in verses 1 through 9, we see that God is caring for a person who really is not an important person in the land. This woman who had left the land and come back, she was a commoner. While she was out of the land, one commentator said that, quote, the property left temporarily was taken over by the crown and was held in trust until reclaimed by the legal owner. So what had happened is when she had abandoned her property, the king, the crown, the, the government had taken over her property, and now he's going to give it back to her. You might also have noticed that Elisha wasn't even present with the king in this whole narrative. Gehazi happened to be there at the right time. The king was saying, what's Elisha been doing? Well, he's doing this and this. You know, he, he raised this, this, this lad from the dead. Just about that time, this woman walks in and says, hey, I want to make an appeal to the king to get my lamb back. You know, those aren't coincidences. That's God dealing in the details. And we find her story in 2 Kings chapter 4. So if you want to know all about that woman, go to 2 Kings 4. And we did that a couple months ago. And, the, and it's 44 verses long, so we're not going to go back and redo it. But she appeared to plead her case and have her land restored, to which the king gave her a favorable verdict. So why is this here? To show that Elisha has power and control. The king, king had Elisha in high regard. And that God takes care of small people, too. We didn't even know her name. But God took care of her. The next thing we have is Elisha predicting Syria's new king. And this is an interesting story here, starting in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. When it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Now, you got to remember, Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria. And he's saying, Go to the man of God, Elisha, in Israel, and ask him if I'm going to recover from this sickness. Verse 9. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels load. Okay? That's just not a box of chocolates. Right? That's a lot. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, 
king of Syria has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Very interesting answer. And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover. But. That word always changes things, doesn't it? (laughs) But. The Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him. So Elisha is staring at Hazael until he was embarrassed. You've heard of awkward pauses when people sit there and do anything. Oh, I think that's what happened. (laughs) King's going to die. And he just sat there and just stared at him. And he stared back and got uncomfortable. Until he was embarrassed. And then, and the man of God wept. And Hezael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip their pre- rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant but a dog? But who, what is your servant who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Israel, or over Syria, excuse me. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. The next day, he murdered him, suffocated him probably. This passage shows, number one, that the king of Syria held Elisha in high regard. Go to Syria, go to Israel and get Elisha to see if I'm going to live. Now, we're not told why uh, uh, Elisha went to Damascus, but he was there in Damascus when he sent for him. But he was there, and Ben-Hadad was aware that Elisha was there. Ben-Hadad now had been king over Syria for 40 years. Even though he was up in his years, he still wanted to know if he would recover from the sickness. He wanted to recover, and he sent Hazael to inquire. Now, I want to back off for a minute, and we're going to a little bit of history here. Let's review the events with Ben-Hadad in Scripture. Who was this guy? Well, first, Ben-Hadad means son of Hadad. Well, who is Hadad? Hadad was the Aramean God and he was the God of storm and thunder so he was named after this Aramean God <clears throat> now <clears throat> from what I found out Ben-Hadad is a title much like Pharaoh or President the term can refer to different individuals at different times The context of each passage needs to be studied to determine who is involved. Most students of history accept the existence of three Ben-Hadads who ruled in Damascus. Ben-Hadad I, who ruled in 900 
to 860 B.C. His son or grandson, Ben-Hadad II, who ruled in 860 to 841, and another unrelated Ben-Hadad, who was the son of the man, Hazael, who murdered Ben-Hadad II. Okay? Now, Ben-Hadad I, we find out about him in 1 Kings 15. In 1 Kings 15 to 20, it says, He sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makkah, and all Chenaroth with all the land of Naphtali. So he was a king of Syria who attacked Israel. That was Ben-Hadad I. Ben-Hadad II we were introduced to in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 43. And he warred with Israel while Ahab was the king of Israel. In 2 Kings 20, it says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Go down to verse 13 of 1 Kings 20. It says, Behold, a prophet came near Ahab, near to Ahab the king of Israel, and says, said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will give it to you, give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 16, And they sent out at noon, and while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and 32 kings who helped him. So they're having a good party time, thinking they had Samaria beat. Then we read, The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Printed that page twice. I don't want to start reading the wrong passage here. Verse 22, Then the prophet came near the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Verse 26, In the spring Ben-Hadad, this is Ben-Hadad II, mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. Okay. But what happened to Ben-Hadad? We read, But Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. He and his servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Well, they just killed 100,000 of your people, but anyway. <laughs> Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Verse 32. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. 
Now these men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. And he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So Ahab let Ben-Hadad II go. And Ahab was later condemned for doing that. In verse 42, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man who I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. This was the act that Ahab did that God said, It's enough, you're done. Okay? In first King Second Kings six twenty four Ben-Hadad was still going. Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So Ben-Hadad and, Samar- and, uh, and Israel, the kingdom of Israel, had constant conflicts. This is Ben-Hadad II. This is the one that we're speaking to in 2 Kings 8, who was sick and sent for Elisha to see if he would live kind of interesting. If you look at that background, why would he go to Elisha? Why didn't he go to his seers that he had in Syria, or the Syrian guys? He must have known that Elisha was going to tell him the truth, and he was of the true God. Then we have Ben-Hadad III, who is the son of Hazael. Now, we won't get into his life because there's not a lot said about him, but those are the three Ben-Hadads. So back to 2 Kings 8. Ben-Hadad was aware that Elisha was a prophet of God. Maybe all this stuff had something to do with that. Not only that, like we said, he didn't reach out to any of the Syrian prophets or seers or wise men. Am I going to live? No, he sent for Elisha. Because he knew that Elisha could be trusted. And then rather than giving Hazael a simple answer, Elisha provided much more detail about the future of both Ben-Hadad and Hazael and Syria and Israel. Told him a lot. The answer to Hazael's question is interesting to say the least. Yes. Ben-Hadad could recover, but he's going to die anyway because you're going to kill him. Now, we're not told how much Elisha knew of the true nature of Hazael. Did he know that he had something brewing in the back of his mind? We don't know. We don't know if he knew that that Hazael wanted to usurp the throne. But Hazael's true intentions were brought out by what Elisha said to him and what we see in the text. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. In other words, oh, he knows something. I didn't tell him. How does he know that? 
Now, Elisha did not like the message he had to deliver from the Lord. He wept because of what was going to happen to Israel. He wept. He knew what was going to happen to Israel because of their sin and rebellion of God, against God. And I sat there and I read that and I was typing it out. And I had to sit and look in a mirror for a minute. Figuratively look in a mirror. Cause I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to look in mirrors too often. Um, how does that compare to my attitude towards our world as it speeds toward the coming judgment of God? A hint of where we are today. According to a poll released in November 2021, that's not very long ago, <clears throat> just a couple months, from a place called the Election Forum, 70% of those who claim to be born-again Christians, 70% disagree with the Bible in John 14, 6, and they say that that where, where it says Jesus is the only way to God. That's a chilling comment. 70%. Oh, there's multiple ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. 9% of people who identify as Christians, this is part of the same thing, 9% of people who identify as Christians, and they say there's 176 million in the United States, 9% hold even a watered-down version of a biblical worldview. The majority believe, and this also comes from <clears throat> that article, all religious faiths are of equal value. You think that Oprah didn't have an impact on her show when she said that? You bet she had an impact. People are basically good. You think Joel Osteen doesn't have an impact when he says 99.9% .9 of people are basically good? Yeah, he has an impact. People, people want to hear that. They want to hear that. The majority believe that people can use acts of goodness to earn their way into heaven. There was one, uh, I think it was Bob Hope, when just before he died, he had an interview and asked him about heaven. And he said, well, all the good stuff I've done, if God doesn't let me in, he's not going to let anybody in, you know. And people, well, yeah, that makes total sense, Bob. You're a good guy. Mm. A majority of people do not believe in moral absolutes. All you got to do is watch television or movies. You get that picked up real quick. You think that that doesn't impact people's actions? I still go back to the what was that movie E.T. And if you it was a long time ago, but if those of you were alive when E.T. came out, there was uh, um, Reese's pieces that were used for him to go pick up and follow something. I was I read that initially they wanted to go and have M&Ms be used, but M&M says no, we don't want to be in the movie, and so Reese's pieces were used. And the sales of Reese's Pieces skyrocketed after that movie. Okay? You don't think that those little things have impact on, on people's actions and attitudes? They do. People do not believe in moral absolutes. 
a majority believe, consider feelings or experience or the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance. Mm-hmm. The input of family or feelings, that's my moral that's my moral compass. If it feels good, do it. And a majority of people say having faith matters more than what faith you believe in. As long as I believe hard enough, it'll work. And all you have to do is look at the new apostolic reformation teachers today, and they teach that. They teach that. One of the, one of the great leaders of that, not a great, not in a good way, the most influential leaders of that, you know, he says, you know, God doesn't believe in, you know, you shouldn't be sick, you know, you, God can heal you, and on and on and on, miracles on miracles. He wears glasses and his wife has cancer. Okay? But, boy, it's all about me having faith. And that's what, that's our world today. Rejected the gospel that's given in Scripture. And I, and I sit there and it's no wonder that this is happening because messages that are given in far too many so-called Christian, uh, Christian churches focus on the goodness of man, that God wants everybody happy, and on and on. Sin is greatly minimized, and so is the coming judgment of God. It's not even on a blip on the radar screen in most of those places. We need to read again scripture passages that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And in Jude, just to name a couple. And as we see our world going, it's okay to weep because of what is coming. We need to have that compassion that Elisha, I need to have that compassion that Elisha had. As I typed that up, I just had to go off on that little rabbit trail. Elisha wept because he knew what was going to happen. We know what's going to happen to this world. All I've got to do is read what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, or Jude 24, or part of Revelation. We can go on. Elisha knew what God was going to do to Israel, and we know what God is going to do to our world. And then once we have that compassion for our world, then we need to act on that compassion by sharing and praying and sharing some more what God says. Back to 2 Kings. In verse 18, 2 Kings 8.18, we read that Hazael did exactly what Elisha predicted. He placed a wet cloth over the king's face and suffocated him. Now, we're not told how he got away with it, <clears throat> but he did. <clears throat> perhaps, perhaps others thought he died because, well, he was sick. He just died. <clears throat> they didn't have the forensic files back then, so they couldn't go and check all that, right? <clears throat> but Elisha knew, and all those who read the Bible know what, ben had, what uh, Hazael did that Ben-Hadad was murdered. Historically, we know that Hazael controlled Syria by 842 B.C., and he was called, quote, the son of a nobody. 
<clears throat> and we also know that the Assyrians, soon after his ascension to the throne, came against Israel and defeated them with a great loss. Three years afterwards, they invaded Syria. But on this occasion, Hazael submitted to them. He turned his arms against Syria and ravaged the land of Gilead. He held, a, he held Israel in a degree of subjugation to him. He aimed also to take Judah, but he was unsuccessful at taking over Judah. He reigned, by the way, for 46 years. <coughs> he was succeeded by his son, Ben-Hadad III, who on several occasions was defeated by Joash, the king of Israel, and compelled to restore all the land that his father had taken back to Israel. So this was a constant battle that happened for the next 46, 50 years. <clears throat> Going on. The next thing we have in 2 Kings 8 is Jehoram's reign. Now, Jehoram, I said it wrong a minute ago. Jehoram was a king of Judah. So we're going from a king of Syria now to a king of Judah. <clears throat> in the fifth year of Jehoram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give him a, a, a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, verse 20, <clears throat> Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zaire with all his chariots and rose by night. He and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of Kings of Judah. So Jehoram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. That's not a very good legacy to have as you're being king for the time you had. We see a few things about him. <clears throat> the first thing is the extremely sad epitaph. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We are told three things about his reign. He married the daughter of Ahab. That's not a very good choice. Mm -hmm. We'll catch up with the going on of, of, uh, of his wife, uh, Athaliah, in chapter 11. Because Athaliah, his wife, is going to reign over Judah for six years. Most people don't know that Judah had a queen 
Uh, they never called that, but she reigned for six years. <clears throat> and even though God saw the evil of the king because of his promise to David, he did not destroy Judah. You know, God is a covenant-keeping God. Always. We don't do so good. How many treaties have ever been signed and followed to the letter? But man still tries to make them up. <clears throat> but we see this in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we think that God should have destroyed them? No. He kept it going because He is not willing that any should perish, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. He makes his gift of salvation available to all. Not all will take it. And the third thing we see <clears throat> is Jehoram failed to put down a revolt from the Edomites, who had <clears throat> uh, not been defeated at the time of the writing here in 2 Kings. They would still revolt it, and they were still there. This shows that Judah was not in a state of strength. They couldn't defeat the Edomites. But probably more importantly, Judah didn't defeat their enemies because of strength. They defeated their enemies because of God. And God did not provide them the victory. Why not? Because they were in rebellion against him. The next thing we have is as Ahaziah's reign. <clears throat> and we see this in First Kings, Second Kings 8, 25 to 29. Now Ahaziah was also a king of Judah. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. Yeah, they sometimes had some pretty young kings. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, and she was the granddaughter of Omri, the king of Israel. Well, Ahab came from Omri, so it all lines up. <clears throat> he also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram, now he's the king of, of Israel at the time, returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given to him at Ramah, and when he fought against Hazael, the king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab and Jezreel because he was sick. Now we know a little bit more about Ahaziah from 2 Chronicles 22. It says he once, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done for after the death of his father they were his counselors to his undoing. 
So what we have, <coughs> we have this, this rebellion against God that Ahab had done. And all these dealings with Elijah didn't change any of that. And now that Elisha is down, it's still the same. But the one thing to note is evil follows evil. Evil emulates evil. And that's what you have. Omri was evil. Ahab was worse. And now you have these guys doing the same thing, even though they are even a different nation. <clears throat> it's true then, and it remains true today. Why? Because evil comes when, from the heart of man, and the heart of man is evil. God tells us that all the time, all the way through Scripture. The heart of man is evil. And the only God can change the heart of man. Second mm-hmm. <clears throat> Corinthians 2.14 says it this way. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. MacArthur said on this, The natural man can't grasp that because it's spiritually appraised, spiritually evaluated, and spiritually understood, and the man is spiritually dead. And before we came to Christ, what were we? Spiritually dead. It's God that changes. <clears throat> so Ahaziah, pretty ugly reign for him as well. But God's not going to let that last forever. Starting in 2 Kings 9, the first 13 verses we see what's going to happen next. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. (coughs) Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and says, Thus saith the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So going back to what the Lord commissioned Elijah to do, because the Lord had told Elijah to do this, but then he took Elijah to heaven, so he hadn't finished it. There are a few open items remaining to be done. One was to anoint Hazael, the king of Syria, which Elisha did in 2 Kings 8. And the other was to anoint Jehu, king over Israel. Now Elijah had predicted that God would also judge the house of Ahab and Jezebel, and all their family would be destroyed. Elijah said that. Ahab has already been killed, but the other family members had not been destroyed, including Jezebel. She was still running around. And we can see that they had power still with Ahaziah and uh, uh, Jehoram. uh, Jehoram. And their power was going everywhere and it wasn't good. So Elisha had this unnamed prophet. We're not told who, who he sent to anoint Jehu the king. And after that had been done to get out of Dodge. Verse 4, 
It says, So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commander of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over all the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. In this section, the prophet selected by Elisha did exactly what he was instructed to do. He anointed Jehu. And during this anointing, he gives Jehu the instructions from the Lord of what he was to do. And then he told him why he was to do it. Ahab and everybody around Ahab was to be destroyed. And then verse 11. And when Jehu came out of the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Okay, that's interesting. And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. I just find that fascinating. Who witnessed the anointing? Jehu and a prophet who anointed him. That's all we're told. That's it. Right? They were in an inner chamber. But he came out and said, he just, he just anointed me king. And they didn't say, ah, oh, come on, you're pulling on. No, they, what'd they do? There's no questioning. There's no debate. They took off their garments, laid it, uh, put them on the bare steps, blew the trumpet, and proclaimed, Jehu is king. No questions. Now, we can speculate as to how surprised Jehu was <clears throat> at being made king, or <clears throat> why they were so quick to follow him. Maybe, maybe they said, oh, good, we got rid of the other, we're going to get rid of the other guy. We don't know. But they followed the statement and did it very willingly. Jehu's first response, though, was questioning those outside the meeting place was to avoid making an answer. But to their insistence, he told them what had taken place. One thing we know for certain, God was orchestrating the events in such a manner that there were no speculations, there were no questionings. Yep, let's do it. <clears throat> now the bulk of the work at this point in time, the bulk of the work recorded for Elisha is now complete. <clears throat> 
We're going to see the last of Elisha in chapter 13. But all the work that we have, that, we, that he had come to do, that we have recorded, is complete. And the next thing we're going to see when we get back into 2 Kings is what did Jehu do? Did he follow God's instructions? And we'll find that Jehu did a little bit of a mixed bag. He followed God some and not as much as he should have. But that's where we're going to come next time we come to 2 Kings.